Amen. Our reading from God's holy word this morning comes from Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1 and extending to verse 6. Please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father in heaven, as we approach your word in these few minutes together, we would, we would ask that your word would approach us. We would ask that as we read this word and consider it, that this word would re- read and consider us. We ask, Lord, that as we seek to understand this word and we seek to apply this word to our lives, that this word would understand us. And that it would be applied for the living sword held by the Holy Spirit. That it would do transformative work in the lives of us, your people. Shape our lives now through the power of this word. And give to us its truth in blessing. That the spiritual appetite of our own hearts would be one that is marked by hungering and thirsting. For righteousness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been doing some reading over the course of the summer in some books that I have uh, read before, some of which I have read many times before. But of course, a sign of a good book is not that you read it and put it on the shelf, but that you reread it and you return to it and to some of the depths of its teaching that it begins to get into you over the course of the many different readings over the course of one's life. Because I, probably like many of you, read things and sometimes it goes in one ear and it goes out the other and I need to work that truth into my soul at a deeper level. I was reminded of this recently in Revisiting Thoughts on Religious Affections by Jonathan Edwards, that American-English pastor in Northampton. Uh, in reading his thoughts on religious affections where he's addressing the issue of the heart, the, uh, the drives of the heart, the motivations of the heart. He gives the metaphor, famously so, of honey. And he says, I could describe to you honey with the loftiest of language. I could add to it descriptors and adjectives that would lift up the virtues of honey and its uh, sweetness in your own mind as you listen and you think, oh, that must be wonderful to have honey. But none of my words would compare, no matter how eloquent uh, nor how accurate those words were in its description, to actually tasting honey. The the tasting of it sparks a hunger for it. 
And that hunger for it begins to direct towards it. In very many ways, this beatitude is in line with that idea. That very notion from Jonathan Edwards that as we dive into this word, our desire is, Oh Lord, let us taste the honey. Don't let us just hear about it. Don't just give us the scriptures of it. Don't just rise, raise our minds to anticipation of it. But help us to know, as we said in the call to worship this morning, to taste and see that you are indeed God. It's good to be in the fourth beatitude. In, in many ways, the first three Beatitudes helping us come to this moment in the text. Uh, these individual statements never meant to be understood simply individually. These blessings, though each carrying their own freight, are meant to be a part of an entire cargo load of blessing that the Lord Jesus is delivering to us as his people. And they have a relationship with each other. That first one, being poor in spirit, speaking to us of humility. And of our neediness. Uh, that second one, mourning our grief and strickenness over sin. Knowing that we have fallen far short of the glory of God. And we need his help in redemption. Uh, meekness, submitting ourselves to the will of the Lord. And being softened. We used the analogy last week to being a wild animal being tamed uh, by the very will of God. And this week, some of you encouraged to say that we actually have some action in the midst of this litany of blessings. For, for some have argued the first three speaking to us primarily of who we are dispositionally as those who would be blessed. But this one speaking about what it is we are driven towards. What we are to actually do. We are to hunger. We are to thirst for righteousness. Uh, Jesus is teaching us that there is an insatiable desire that should be a part and parcel of the genuine Christian life. That Christians are not people who simply say, we have desires, but we try to stuff them. We try to stamp them out. We try to put them down. We try as best as possible not to entertain them or think of them or give in to them. No, Jesus is recognizing here in this beatitude that the desires that are within you, the longings that are within you, the, the, the inconsolable push towards being satisfied is something that is a clue to the nature of the way you've been made. And it doesn't need to be stamped out. In fact, it can't be ever in any full sense of the word, but it needs to be channeled. It needs to be directed. That our drives have a terminus, an end in view. And that end, as he puts it here, is righteousness. Now as we look at this passage together, I want to just give it to you in a bit of a summary of where I believe the Lord is taking us this morning. And then from that summary, I want to reflect on three aspects of this passage to help us hopefully gain the benefit from what it is that Jesus has in store for us. But I want you to see it in kind of a full orb sense. So if by chance you were to zone out at some point in the sermon, not that you would do that, of course, but if by chance that were to happen, you would at least have this summary uh, in mind. Here's the summary. True and lasting satisfaction comes not from the delights of the world, as good as they may be, 
nor does it come from religious performance, as important as that may be, but from an earnest and sincere pursuit of the righteousness of God. True and lasting satisfaction comes not from the delights of the world, as good as they may be, not from religious performance, as important as that may be, but from an earnest and sincere pursuit of the righteousness of God. Now with that in mind, that being the big picture of where it is that the Lord is going to take us, I'm going to look at this passage in three ways. And the first, the first of the three ways I want to look at is in a, in a question. Why is it that we're all starving? Why is it that we're all starving? I would, I would suggest to you as you came into this room this morning that you're hungry. And you're thirsty, whether you know it or not. It has nothing to do with your breakfast or the coming lunch. It has to do with a spiritual appetite. That there's something in this life that you're pursuing. There's some end that you're, you're after. Some desire that gets you up in the morning and moves you towards what you believe to be a purposeful or hope to be a purposeful existence. Part of the reason for that is that hunger inside of you and that purposefulness for existence, that seeking of satisfaction is something that's embedded right in the DNA of what it means to be a human being. Back in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, we have man and woman in the Garden of Eden in a place that depicts fruitfulness, a place of delight, a place where our hunger and our thirst could be satiated, could be met with a fullness and a quenching. It was there in the relationship with God that we enjoyed these things, but it was there also in relationship with each other in creation and the physical world. All being in harmony, we lived in a place of satisfaction. A place that was designed perfectly for us to be in relationship with God. It was there where we enjoy the fruits of the tree of life. And it was there where we're told God walked in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden. That reality is still embedded within you. That hope, that dream, that desire to be in that space with God, with each other, with the world is always within you. And crying out in the variety of desires and longings that are, that are embedded within you. Some of which you may try to meet with relationships or with achievements or successes or, or, or with addictions. And any manner of other means by which to snuff out that, that inconsolable longing that points to a loneliness or a missing peace. Knowing that you need something. That there that's in the midst of you, I want to, I want to tell you that's, that's normal. And it's a clue. It's a clue that you're not where it is that you are supposed to be, but you, you once were, historically speaking. Historically speaking, Adam and Eve there with, with God, with their needs met, with their joys at a crescendo, moving from one degree of that crescendo to another as they enjoyed the delights of the Lord. But it was through eating that they lost their way. Eating not, of course, of the tree of 
of life, but eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They hungered and thirsted for something other than righteousness. And in their hungering and in their thirsting for something other than righteousness, they, they consumed the tree of, of the knowledge of good and evil. The, the one tree which God had put parameters around, which he had told them to not eat of. It was that tree that the evil one, the serpent himself, exploited and stirred up, as it were, an appetite within Eve and then within Adam, to partake of that which was not righteous, that was outside of the scope of, of what God had called them to be. And in so doing, was a food that left them hungrier. In this sense, they are not unlike Edmund, right, in the Chronicles of Narnia. When the wicked witch offers to him Turkish delight and he finds himself eating more and more and more of it and it becomes an all-consuming obsession of food, picturing in many ways iniquity and in that iniquity finding himself never being able to get full though he continues to eat more. It's an appropriate picture of the experience of many of our lives, isn't it? When we find ourselves consuming the things that we think will satisfy and finding ourselves more empty at the end of the consumption. The reason that we're starving to death is because of that long line of faithless eating. Of the consuming of the things that are not of the tree of life. But the trespassing, moving in to a diet that has nothing to do with fullness for what it is that we've been designed for. It's important to recognize that that longing inside of you and that empty space inside of you that you try to feel that constantly gets sucked into the vacuum and leaves you emptier still is never going to be filled by the delights of the world. Because it is, as Pascal said, a God-shaped vacuum. It's a shape for the relationship that you've lost with God himself. And you won't be satisfied and grow into that satisfaction until he fills that space. So as you come into the presence of the Lord this morning, I want you to know it's normal to be longing. It's normal to have desires. But that hungriness that can never be satisfied on the things of the world is from a long line of looking to the world for what only God can give. And you're in the midst of that narrative and story, as am I. And so the question has always been, what, how do we get back on track? How do we, where do we go? What do we do? Well, we move from why it is that we're starving to what I think is important for us to explore, two different diets that we tend to turn to which we think will satisfy but don't. Two different types of diets that the world offers to us, that, that we have a tendency to, to move towards, that we think this is what's ultimately going to make me happy. And we find that if you're like me, you often vacillate between these two diets, finding neither of them satisfying. If righteousness is the thing that satisfies, the, the two diets are pretty easy to acknowledge. One is called unrighteousness and the other is called self-righteousness. 
Uh, Unrighteousness is the diet that I'm calling the fat but not so happy diet. This is the kind of red, meat-eating, beer-drinking, party-going, law-breaking menu. It's the one where you're rejecting God's commands. You're choosing your own way. You're throwing off every sense of authority and convention. It's the picture of what we see in a number of places throughout the Scriptures, going all the way back to Cain. Cain, a man who is described as a wicked man, described as a murderer, A man who acts in a voracious sinfulness of which even bloodshed can't seem to get him to the satisfaction that he's pursuing. It's like a city like Sodom and Gomorrah, completely given over to the lusts of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And the more that they get, the more that they need. Egypt is described as idolatrous and unrighteous, a people who have given themselves over to other false gods and in so doing find themselves giving their lives over to waywardness. It's even the people of Israel. You remember when in somewhat of an ironic moment, Moses going up on Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, the people of God down below at the base of the mountain are fashioning an idol And as they fashion the idol, they throw a party and they're described in this way that they sat down to eat and to drink and they rose up to play. Now when you hear that language, rise up to play, don't be thinking a three or four year old in the nursery who rises up to play with some toys. That's not the the indication in the text. Think more of a fraternity party gone wrong. That's what we have going on here. But not only do we see that in the Bible, we see it in church history. Maybe one of the most famous passages, another book that I'm uh, rehearsing again over the course of this summer is St. Augustine's Confessions. In his confessions, he goes back after looking at the years of his immorality and looking back to the seeds of where that immorality arose. He remembers grievously before the Lord of a time when he, with a, with a band of young men, decided to steal a number of pears. They're tasting these pears, breaking into this vineyard, gathering them up for themselves. He remembers that they don't really even enjoy the pears. The pears are not very good. He doesn't even need the pears. He simply was after the thrill of stealing them. It was only, he says, in the pleasure of doing that which was forbidden, which gave to my heart a sense of drive. The malice of this act was base, and I'm sad to say that I loved it. Unrighteousness. It ultimately became a destructive force in the life of Augustine until ultimately he met the Lord, where he would say at the opening of the confessions, my heart was restless until it found rest in thee. But it's not just unrighteousness, it's, it's self-righteousness. It's also a diet that we tend to go to that doesn't satisfy. And in fact, I, I think often for many of us, the diet that, w- that may be our, our preferred one if we have grown up in, in the Christian church. Uh, this diet is not the fat but not so happy diet. This one I'm calling the skinny but miserable diet. Uh, this is the... This is the free-range, gluten-free, organic folks. 
shop only at Whole Foods. They have their gym membership well in view. They're fastidious in doing everything just right, never putting anything harmful in their body. They're going to keep the law to its fullest. They're going to look like a chiseled Greek god. They're committed to being perfect in every way that they know how, except for the fact that they do it from the wrong motive, from the wrong heart. Paul says this was the diet of choice for the Jews in his own day. He says the Jews pursued righteousness, but they failed to attain it because they pursued it in the wrong way. Romans 9.30 through Romans 10.4. They sought it to establish their own righteousness rather than the righteousness that comes as a gift from God. They looked to righteousness as something they could earn, a righteousness that was based on works. An indication that we're in this midst of self-righteousness is we're doing everything we know to do to the greatest degree that we know to do it. We're trying to check off every box. We're religiously devoted and and detailed in in our keepings of it. But we're frustrated, joyless, angry, always thinking that we're not getting our due, finding ourselves missing out on the very heart of the grace of the gospel. We, we look like we're doing everything right. We look like we're in good order, but we're vacuous when it comes to our own real relationship with the Lord. We've turned Christianity into a number of boxes to check rather than a relationship to be nurtured. And in that relationship to be nurtured, the actions of obedience flowing from a heart that's been transformed by Christ. And those actions being relational in our love for the Lord, not simply as acts to be performed in order to gain an approval, either with God or with man. You see, Luke 18 really displays this for us as Jesus tells us the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. He says the Pharisee gets up to pray, to be seen by others. And he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even this here tax collector. I fast twice a week. I get tithes of all that I get. Now let's look at his list. It's good not to be an extortioner. That's a good thing. It's good not to be unjust. That's a great thing. I'm glad to hear he's not an adulterer. I'm also encouraged to hear that he fasts, that he gives from his tithe. All wonderful things. It's not the things. It's the reason for why he does the things. It's the drive. He stands to pray, even as the text says, to be seen by others. In the midst of his acts of righteousness, he always has himself in view. There's a great story that C.H. Spurgeon tells in one of his sermons of a citizen who overheard another citizen going to give a gift to the king. As he goes to give this small trinket of a gift to the king, uh, the king in response uh, gives to the citizen land that he can go and make fruitful, an incredible response to this little small gift. The citizen hears of the gift that this other citizen received from this small gift, and he thinks, well, if you can get such lands for a trinket, what would I get for a great gift? And so he goes and gets his best horse. It brings this incredibly valuable horse before the king. He wants the king to receive it. He bows before him and gives him, and he awaits for the king to give him even more than the citizen who had come with the small trinket. But when the king, knowing his heart, sees what it is he was after, he just received the horse with thanksgiving and dismissed him. 
And he could see the forlorn look on the man's face. And the king said to the man, listen, the other man came to me with the small gifts because he loved me. But you have come with yourself in view. And the gift that you have given is not really a gift at all, but a gift to yourself. How many of us are guilty of something similar? Well, we know we are when we've done all the right things and something doesn't go right in our life. And we think to ourselves, now Lord, you owe me. Remember that thing I did. Remember how good I've been. And we see that we're in this tit-for-tat relationship. We're actually operating on self-righteousness. We think that there is a, a back and forth, a barter or a bargaining that's going on in our relationship with the Lord based upon our performance. These are the diets that we tend to move to, isn't it? The diets of self-righteousness and the diets of, of unrighteousness. And, and to be honest, don't we go back and forth between the two? We get burned out of the self-righteousness. We think, I just got to loosen up. I need to loosen up. I need to not worry so much. And then we fall off the unrighteous bandwagon. And then we fall off the unrighteous bandwagon. And then we go, I got to tighten things up. And we come over here and we, we go to... And, and we miss righteousness in the midst of that. For God has not called us to unrighteousness or to self-righteousness, he's called us to righteousness, to hunger and to thirst for righteousness. Not only do we understand why we're starving, not only do we see the two diets that never satisfy, but we do have here in the text the one that does. Now, why is it so important that we hunger and thirst for righteousness? Well, I think it's important that we understand what the word righteousness means. The word righteousness comes from the same root word as the word justified in the Scripture. To, to be justified is to be in right standing with the Lord. To be righteous is to be in right standing with the Lord. Uh, the theologians like to put it as being positionally righteous. That means that by virtue of what Christ has done for us, His righteousness has been charged to our account. Therefore, we are positionally or in the position of righteousness before Almighty God. Righteousness, to be in the position of a righteous standing with the Lord. And this is why I almost titled this sermon, Righteousness and Acquired Taste. Because it is something that must be acquired for us. It's a taste that we must receive as a, as a gift for, from the Lord. Because that's what Jesus has done. Look at what Romans 5 tells us. As one trespass led to the condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness, that is what Jesus accomplished for us in the cross, in the burial and the resurrection, one act of righteousness leads to the justification of life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, Jesus, the many were made righteous. See, Paul is teaching us of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And he's saying, your standing before the Lord doesn't come on the heels of your performance, but it comes on the heels of Christ's performance for you. You're declared righteous, not by virtue of the fact that you are righteous, but by virtue of the fact that he is righteous and all that he is has been charged to you. 
How does that happen, you ask? Well, Paul is clear about that as well. Romans 3.21. There is a righteousness that has been manifested apart from the law. That's where the Pharisees went wrong. They thought that they could gain a standing with God in and through the law. They did not understand the depth of their sin or of their lostness, of their depravity. Paul says there is a righteousness apart from the law. And here's what it is. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. That's the righteousness that we're after. The righteousness that comes through faith. We have acquired righteousness. It's acquired taste. Not acquired by you. Acquired for you by Christ. Now, it doesn't stop there, though. This text is not merely speaking of salvation, is it? It's also speaking of another big theological word called sanctification. Growing in righteousness. So here's the great conundrum in some ways of the Christian faith, the great mystery. You are righteous today. As the Lord looks at you, if you are in Christ, if you are trusting in Him alone for your salvation, as He is offered in the gospel... God looks upon you and you are wrapped in the beautiful robes of righteousness that have been charged to your account by way of faith because of what Jesus has accomplished for you. But look at you, you're still a mess. Sin everywhere, brokenness, even this morning. The wheels have come off and they will come off again this afternoon. How is it possible that he's able to call you righteous when you are not righteous? What is this fiction that we are describing? Well, again, we have to remember, these merits that are being credited to our account are not about us. They are about Christ. It has been charged and declared. It is not actual yet. It will be. But it is not actual yet. You have acquired that standing by virtue of Christ, but you are now practically day by day growing into that which he promises that you will become, which he has already declared you to be. Here's what's different about Christianity than any other religion in the world. Every other religion in the world says, do these things, and then you will be saved. Then life will go well from you. Then you will be blessed. Christianity says, Christ has done these things for you. You are blessed. Now grow into those things. It's completely opposite. Works leading to salvation, whereas ours is grace leading to works. A salvation that starts out our relationship with the Lord. It's why Christianity has assurance on the front end. The only reason you should have assurance today has nothing to do with how well your week was. It has to do with how well the week was for Jesus and his righteousness that has been secured for you. Your assurance in that and the recognition is what begins to grow you in righteousness. So if you can see it, Christ acquires for you righteousness. It's an acquired taste. But as he acquires for you righteousness, you begin to acquire a taste for righteousness. You begin to love the things that he loves. You begin to long to do the things that he calls you to do. It is, well, it's just as you know it. Just as the way the human experience is. You've probably been out to eat. Maybe this last week. 
And when you went out to eat, you looked at the menu. And if you're with the Sheridans, the Sheridans have a couple of kid menus alongside a couple of adult menus. And you don't really ever have to look at the kids' menu, do you? Because you always know what's on the kids' menu. Let me, t- let me tell you what's on the kids' menu, wherever it is you're going. Chicken fingers, pizza, cheese toast, macaroni, applesauce, apple juice, soft drink. There you have it. I mean, it's something like that, right? It's very small. It's all the same. You know, you can go Mexican restaurant, Italian restaurant, it's all the same. It's all the same, right? Why is that? Because they don't have an acquired taste for the other things on the menu. In their immaturity, their palate is conditioned towards a very small group of delights. But as you grow in maturity over the course of your life and as you're exposed to the delicacies of many different textures and flavors, the menu grows and you find yourself beginning to choose and in fact make better choices for the food that actually brings satisfaction than the kind that doesn't. Listen, friends, that's exactly the nature of the way righteousness works. Over the course of Christian life, you begin to learn These choices, these these commands, these parameters that the Lord has put in our place, these are meant to satisfy. In the initial start of eating your Brussels sprouts, no one enjoys it. But as we had Brussels sprouts last night with our baked cod, and there was none left on my plate, and there was plenty left on Luke's plate. It resembled the fact that our palates have changed. When you grow in Christ, gaining from Him the righteousness that is His, you begin not just positionally to rejoice in that righteousness, you begin to practically become righteous. You begin to make steps in holiness and in growth and in grace. And it becomes one of those things that satisfies You're seeing that God is doing a great work within you. I love the way John Blanchard put it. He says, hunger for righteousness demands to be satisfied and satisfaction will increase your hunger for righteousness. The more earnestly a Christian pursues holiness, the greater the progress he will make. And the greater the progress he makes, the greater progress he will want to make. Someone actually told me yesterday that they enjoyed working out. I find that very confusing. Some of you are marathoners, you're workout people. Maybe there's a name for you, I don't know. Some of you tell me you really love it, like you can't imagine not doing it. I can't imagine doing it. You know, like it's just, it's difficult on that front. What's the difference between me and you? You've acquired a taste for it. You've you've worked at it. You've gotten to the point where you are experiencing the pleasure and the satisfaction of what was once not very pleasurable or satisfying. That's a good thing. When you find it a struggle to read your Bible... To pray, to obey the commands of Christ, to bear witness for Him in your neighborhood, in your workplace. 
It's because you've not yet gained the pleasure in the hard work of the discipline and the acquired taste of the call of righteousness is not yet sweet to the palate. We're asking the Lord to cleanse the spiritual taste buds of our soul and to, with tried and true discipline over the good things, find ourselves start loving the things that Jesus commands. He who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, that is who's blessed. And he or she shall be filled. A couple of years ago, I was... I was reading the details of a, of a diet that I was going to try. Over the course of my life, I've lost, I don't know, 150 pounds probably. I've gained it all back, of course. But you know, I lose it and then gain it, lose it and gain it. Right. It's the battle. It was on one of those moments where I needed to lose a few pounds, about where I'm at right now. And as I was reading the details of the diet, it said, you know, all these things I should stay away from, like breads and dairy and red meat, like everything I wanted. And then it got to vegetables. And it said you can eat until your heart's content. Do you know what Jesus is telling us? When it comes to righteousness, you can eat until your heart's content. You can eat and be satisfied. And in your eating, you'll want more. And the more that you want is good for you. The joy and the satisfaction of it comes to you. You can eat until your heart's content. Indeed, that's where the scripture takes us, doesn't it? Because it teaches us to not gratify the desires of the flesh, but to crucify them. To eat righteousness until our heart's content because the end of days will be this. Revelation chapter 7 verse 16. We shall in that day of Christ's return hunger no more. We will thirst no more. For the Lamb is in the midst of the throne. He will be their shepherd. He will guide them to the springs of living water. And he will wipe away every tear from their eye. Do you see, when you say yes to the commands of God, when you open up your Bible, when you pray, when you bear witness, you're getting ready for your future. The future that's already been won for you in Christ. Get prepared for your future by hungering and thirsting for righteousness today. Lord in heaven... Increase our love for righteousness. For quitting of sin and for growing in grace. And for tending a tightness, a closeness and intimacy in our relationship with you. Lord, you know exactly how that grace needs to be portioned out in the lives of all of us here in this room. Would you right now come? And would you begin to rid our souls of the things that we may have been weaned on, which are wicked and evil? And would you begin to give us a disgust for those things? Would you begin to turn us from that wickedness in repentance and turn us towards the things that are good and right and true and beautiful? And would you capture our hearts with it so that we would eat your righteousness until our hearts content? Lord, come and meet with us in that way and know us for we need your grace. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.